Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Gym Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, Zarin. Hey, what's up, Elizabeth Dutton? What are you doing here? Just hanging out. You know what's ridiculous? Oh, word. I do, actually. Okay. American roller coasters were invented to fight sin and vice. How? Well, okay, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) (laughs) Back in the 1880s, there was this dude named Lamarcus Thompson, who, by the way, not a black man. He was selling ladies' undergarments, and he gets rich, right? He's like, you know what I want to do with all this money I've made from selling hosiery? I want to fight vice and sin. So he goes out to Coney Island, which is like a hotbed of sin at the time, and he's like... I'm going to clean this place up. So he invents and doesn't invent. He takes the idea of a roller coaster and builds America's first roller coaster. And he's like, now this should clean up all the drinking and the brothel going. And it did not work at all. But Coney Island is still like a nice denizen. So the panty king of Coney Island wanted to just scare the sin out of people. And that's why we have roller coasters in America. Wow. Right? Kind of ridiculous. That's very ridiculous. It's like that dude Kellogg with the frosted flakes to keep you from pleasuring yourself. Sure. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> the thing is just, it's always the indirect ones. Right. I'm going to fight sin. I'm going to fight moral corruption. And then they give us roller coasters and cornflakes. Sometimes you just got to let go and let sin do its thing, I suppose. <laughs> let go and let God. Let go and let God fight the sin for you. <laughs> Frosted flakes aren't going to help you. You know what else is ridiculous? Hmm. Pretending to be nobility in order to smuggle glass eyeballs into the oh, country. That is good. Wait. Mm-hmm. Smuggling glass eyeballs is a thing and then on top of that you put in I'm royalty oh yeah I'm loving this it's a, a lot of things mm. 
This is Ridiculous Crime, a podcast about absurd and outrageous capers, heists, and cons. It's always 99% murder-free and 100% ridiculous. Zarin. Elizabeth. I called you here today because I want to tell you about a man with the smuggler's blues. Oh, word. Baby blues, that is. (laughs) I'm going to give you that one. Thank you. He was the king of black market glass eyeballs. I'm loving black market glass eyeballs. Yeah. I'm talking about Bruno Schulz. Bruno Schulz? Bruno, Bruno Schulz. Okay. He, that was his original name. Yeah. Now, he went by a lot of aliases in his time. So we'll consider that his government name and then move on? Right. Now, because my tiny brain and I are incapable of pronouncing anything in German, mm-hmm. I'm going to play a clip of my friend Patrick reading off all of his names. Oh, nice. Come on, Patrick. Bruno Schulze, a.k.a. Bruno von Schönewitz, a.k.a. Baron Bruno von Schönewitz von Ungerswerb und Adlersloven, a.k.a. Albert Föhrenbach. Thank you, Patrick. That was beautiful. Okay, so this cat, no matter what name he was using, was crafty. He was a crafty cat. <laughs> and he saw a need in the market, and he went for it. Okay. He had gumption. He <laughs> An had eyeball hustle. need? Yeah. Well, see, because a lot of people need prosthetic eyes. Yeah, no, I, I just didn't realize it was enough of a market that you would be like, oh, I should smuggle these into the country. Well, it's I think it was more true in the past, right? Because medicine's improved over the years. Oh, good point, so good like point. Back, I'm talking about the early 1900s here. Right, So right. early 1900s, like if you got an eye injury, a lot of times you just lost the peeper. Oh, of course, industrial accidents. Mm-hmm. All the people who were working in dangerous industries before there were labor regulations we think of. Sword play. There was no OSHA. I <laughs> no, got you. Yeah. So that you know, that was it. You didn't have an eye. Plus, World War II kind of put a run on glass eyes. Now, this is slightly after what I'm talking about, but there wasn't just a need for glass eyes coming out of the war, which there was, mm-hmm. but also during the war there were supply chain issues. Oh, because they needed glass for military purposes. Right. And just the, you know, transporting goods across the ocean's blue, a little bit tough. Right. Didn't even think about that. Totally. Well, and so it wasn't, when we're talking about glass eyes too, it wasn't one and done with the glass eyes. So like you had to replace them every couple of years. You don't just get one and then now I'm, I'm set. So you don't have like one you could like, you know, pass down as a family heirloom, no. like grandpa's eyeball. <laughs> I'm wearing my great grandpappy's eye. No, Still they, fits. Well, because you have to replace them because the acid in your, that your body secretes um, breaks down the glass and causes pitting. Whoa. Yeah. Our bodies break down glass. Uh-huh. And it discolors it too. I mean, part of that, I suppose, would be like the enamel paint on there or whatever. But sure. Yeah. So, and those, the glass eyes are hollow. It's not a solid... It's not like an actual marble. No, that'd be too heavy. Oh, of course. So sometimes they could just shatter in the socket. Oh. Yeah. God, that sounds horrible. And apparently it wasn't... A piece of glass in an open orbital socket just shattering? Uh Yeah, that's bad. And it didn't necessarily have to be as a result of trauma. I think that sometimes... Just pressure or age? (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. Pressure, age. That's wild. Atmospheric issues. No, I've I've had uh, family members who had glass eyeballs. Really? Yeah, they'd like take them out, put them in the the uh, water glass. <laughs> why? Like, I guess because like I don't know why. Like a it was just for trick? their comfort, but it was like when they took it oh. out, that's where they put. It was like putting teeth in a glass. You know, like when people had dentures. Yeah. So they take a glass eyeball and put it in the glass. My old Uncle huh. Herbert. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. R.I.P. Uncle Herbert. Yeah. Thanks, Herbies. <laughs> um, newspapers at this time they ran stories about glass eyes every couple years, mm-hmm. just sort of features about like the gist would be basically like losing an eye not a big deal 
And lots of people have glass eyes. Please don't make fun of it. So like, they were, in a sense, like not nor- just normalizing it. They were kind of like doing like, like, let's reach out and be kind to those with glass eyes. Yeah. And so the beginning, like, well, I, I started to wonder, was there like epic bullying going on that the papers have to jump in and be like, all right, everybody, <laughs> stop. It's not a big deal. It happens to a lot of people. But then they would also kind of tie it in into a longer form thing about the history of glass eyes or talking with distributors or manufacturers. And so, hmm, interesting. Um, yeah, and it would it would be one that would put it on a, on a wire service. So then it would be like all around the country, newspapers from Provo to Providence. Precisely. And it would be the exact same article of okay. how that works. But so one of the things that I noted in the papers is that um, a lot of theater at the time would use glass eyes as a plot point. Hmm, interesting. And it would be sort of a weird one. Plus, there were a lot of weird news stories about glass eyes, like people losing them, like them falling out during fist fights. Oh. There were a lot of news reports oh, about that. <laughs> Talk or about like, inopportune time. There was this news report where this guy got beaten with an umbrella until the umbrella basically disintegrated. Because the man with the umbrella thought a man with a glass eye was trying to flirt with his wife. But the glass eye guy was just blinking all crazy because he got an ember in his good eye. And the glass one started rolling around independently. Chaps shouldn't be laughing. Oh, man. Getting beaten until the umbrella disintegrates. They were on a train and the man just beat him until there was nothing left of the umbrella. And so that was a popular news story. I'm betting a lot of people flirted with his wife. He's got a lot of anger. He came to that moment. Yeah. She was. (laughs) I'm just saying. She was a looker. Pun intended. So um, (laughs) glass eyeballs, reliable business. Uh And there were three facets to this industry. Okay. So there were the artisans who crafted these eyeballs. Mm -hmm. And Germans and Belgians made the best eyeballs. Hmm, Because of precision? Yeah, totally precise. Apparently, they were made largely by peasant families in the Black Forest for many years. Wow. (laughs) Like out of a fairy tale. Like, so a kid goes missing in town, and then they discover him in the eyeball artisan house. Yeah, in the factory where they just trays (laughs) of eyeballs. He's working for them. (laughs) And they were, so they're excellent, but then... Part of it, too, is that as they moved these operations into big cities and mm-hmm. had, like, an industrial angle to it, um, they're precise, like you said, smooth, really masterfully crafted. They used the best painters in Europe to create perfect matches based on, like, a client's needs. Hmm. So most people wanted as close a match as possible, obviously. Some people wanted novelty eyeballs. Like, what would be a novelty, like, all silver? I, I guess, like, a different Maybe colors. Maybe, like, a like, ace of spades in the eye? Yeah, well, there was, one, there was one guy in a paper who had, like, the colors of the Haitian flag. Oh, that's dope. Yeah. That's so, so Haitian, too. Yeah, <laughs> so that's, yeah. So they have, you know, novelty ones, but, like, um, the Boston Evening Transcript in 1905, they had this article that talked about how blue eyes were the hardest to match. Hmm. Um, they said there were many shades uh, with what they called imperceptible gradations. But I would imagine that's true for any I would think color. green eyes would be really mm-hmm. hard to match. Yeah. If you didn't have enough money for that, mm-hmm. you could rent an eyeball. <laughs> for formal events? Like, I need to have both eyes for <laughs> You're tonight? You're going for a job interview and you don't want to wear a patch, I guess? Or, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Or you're getting married and it's a big day. and like, I don't know. <laughs> But hey, when would you want the eyeball? You know, I, for photos? I mean, like, I guess, the, I guess you know, photography is yeah. pretty rare at the yeah, time. Yeah, you got to so sit like, super still during those photos. And so you just got like the one. I don't like wearing rented shoes at a bowling alley. That <laughs> makes me totally grossed out. I can't imagine renting an eyeball and inserting it into my body. <laughs> 
They're not gonna, are they going to spray it down with the disinfectant <laughs> spray? From the bowling alley. That, or do they do like Herbie, put it in a glass of water? I think, you know, the body is, you know, kind of resilient for that kind of stuff. And we put a lot of things in our mouths. It's kind of a hole in your head, just like the my, eye. My brother wears contacts. Mm-hmm. And one time he was on the street in San Francisco mm-hmm. outside of like a nightclub or something. And his contact fell out. And there was this girl standing there, and there, she's helping him look. And she finds the contact and puts it in her mouth to clean it off and then hands it to him. Did he put it in his eye? Yeah, he did. Yeah, see? That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> and he's still walking around today. But her, she probably just keeled over right then, <laughs> picking it up out of the gutter. I like her spirit. Just yeah. licks it. Here you go. It's her heady time. Cleaned it up with my saliva <laughs> like a mama bear. Exactly. So... You can rent these things, right? Um, so you're probably going to rent the high-end ones, I suppose. Hopefully, or whatever. Yeah. The French made good ones, but they weren't as exacting as German-made eyes. Let's be honest. I would just put a, a marble in my head. I would you be like, don't. that's it. That's what you get, kids. <laughs> Stone. A, a decorative, like, uh, landscaping rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when I'm at restaurants, just looking for things. <laughs> a hard-boiled egg. Um, American eyes? Mm-hmm. Trash. American eyes. They were uneven. They weren't particularly smooth. It sounds really uncomfortable. <laughs> they weren't very realistically painted either. Because you gotta have like the little blood vessel yeah, things. Totally. And it was just like a goofy cartoon eye. It just had like a sticker on a piece of glass. <laughs> it had. A, it was a marble with one of those banana stickers. Yeah, I was like, old banana company. Um, and that this eight. I said there were three facets. Second facet were the optometrist who paired those in search of an eye with the perfect match, or as close as their wallet would allow, okay. right? Um, so these guys would source big lots of eyes and present those in need with a variety of options. So they would have the, the tray and be like... Yeah, and some large shops had like 10,000 eyes in wow. stock to ensure a close match. That's a lot of storage. 10,000 yeah. of anything. 10,000 of anything. This meant that German eyes then mm-hmm. were sold at a total premium. And hmm. that takes us to our other facet of this industry, the importers. Okay. So, obviously, to get European glass eyes into the country. Oh, like the wholesale dealers. Mm-hmm. I got you. Okay. There were people in the glass eyeball import-export business, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal <laughs> yes. when you're stuck talking to someone. What do you do? I'm um, a legitimate businessman. I do import-export. <laughs> what do you move? Eyeballs. Glass eyeballs. <laughs> Olive oil, glass eyeballs. Um, and where there is importing goods, there are taxes and fees. The import tax on glass eyeballs at the time was 60%. Wow, that seems yeah. really high. Well, the U.S., okay, protectionist I know, yeah, we were in time, that protectionist right? tariff. Tariffs were already artificially high. Mm-hmm. Glass eyeballs were classified as art, not medical equipment. Oh, so just getting like the rates for luxury goods and mm-hmm. art and everything. It's like Yeah. So in addition to the high cost for this superior quality for German eyeballs, there's even more of a markup to cover mm-hmm. the cost of the taxes. So you can see where there would be a market for crappy homegrown eyes. (laughs) American eyes. American (laughs) eyes. So there's a robust market for a product. There's a large fee levied on said product. Mm -hmm. Naturally, those with criminal inclination will see an opportunity. My people. Yes. If you skip the whole tax thing but keep the retail price just a little lower than the market, Mm -hmm. you undercut your competitors, you pocket some profit— so are they looking for like glass eyeballs that fell off the back of the truck? Like, what? well, you're, this is here's the thing. This sets the stage for epic smuggling. Oh, right. Yeah, uh, Bruno Schultz and our into... man Bruno steps right up big time. So I want you to picture it. Okay, eyes are closed. Hoboken. <laughs> 
November 1911. <laughs> okay. There's a chill in the air. Is it the anticipation of a young Frank Sinatra about to be born? <laughs> We've talked about this before. When was Frank Sinatra born? I think it's 1915. Uh, Professor Dave, can you tell me when Frank Sinatra was born? Okay, I'm going 1915. Come on, Zara. Come on. Let's see if I'm right. My dad will be so 19, disappointed I'm going to say 1917. He was born December 12th. 1915 yeah, in Hoboken, New Jersey. Come on, that's Good right. Good job, Zaren. I su- still get my father's love. <laughs> was he born in, in where? a log cabin? He, he was born in an upstairs tenement, 415 Monroe Street in Hoboken, New Jersey. Right, oh, born go. at home. Yeah. Well, well, I think most, most people, people were. were at that time, yeah. Um, so anyway, 1911, he's just but a glimmer. Okay. <laughs> uh, passenger ship pulls into harbor, mm-hmm. by the way. There are really cool photos of the Holland America Line Pier in Hoboken from this time. Oh, that's like the luxury liner? Mm-hmm. That's okay. the, the line that Bruno took. Um, I'm going to put them on the Instagram. Nice. Ridiculous crime Always Instagram. like to go to see it. Uh, so here we are, Hoboken, 1911. This handsome, gregarious man calling himself Baron Bruno von Schonowitz <laughs> gets off the boat with his family. Now, there are a few employees of the ship company, um, there to take some of Bruno's belongings, mm-hmm. you know, his luggage, boxes marked for delivery to his printing shop. So these are like porters and stuff? Yeah. Okay. Taking them off the ship, putting them off to the side where everyone else's stuff is being offloaded. An associate of Bruno's who worked as a printer in the shop, Philip Stroh, he was hanging out waiting to help take the boxes away. Bruno is just swanning around, <laughs> chatting people up. He's ordering workers around and generally playing the role of Baron. And is he like, like a big German guy? Or yeah. Does he, does he fit the Yeah, the he's a big guy. He's got like curly blonde hair and a mustache. Big Teutonic. And, mm-hmm, okay. All barrel chested. So customs agents, you know, it's normal to see them on the docks, mm-hmm. right? They start heading towards Bruno's stuff, but they have obvious intention about it. Oh, yeah. they're, they're marching. This wasn't random. They'd been tipped off. It seems as if the local eyeball merchants, the Eyeball Merchants Association (laughs) and importers, they figured out his gambit and they ratted him out to the feds. And they knew when he was arriving. Mm -hmm. Was this like, okay, go on. Customs officers crack open the boxes. Uh Uh-huh. Staring back at them were 15,000 glass eyeballs. Oh, boy. (laughs) That's a freaky sight. (laughs) Oh, man. So my invented detail for that Mm -hmm. is that one of them standing there let out a high-pierced shriek (laughs) when the top came off the box. (laughs) So the customs agents, they look at Bruno. Bruno looks at the customs agents. The agents look back at the eyes. (laughs) The eyes in the crate all look over at Bruno. (laughs) Busted. Bubba busted. In an instant, Bruno's smuggling scam is exposed. Looks like the end for our erstwhile baron. Not even close. Yeah, I knew it. His story gets weirder, windier. Let's take a break for some ads. I don't know how many of them, Mm -hmm. but ads. And when we come back, we're going to take a look. Get it? Get it? I caught that one. Did you get it? I'm over here still catching it. We're going to take a look. At the rest. double down, huh? Hey, pal, we're going to take a look. I peeped your game here. (laughs) The rest of this caper. Can I rant for a sec? Please. 
pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. As you know, the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. With every crime I've studied, I've learned one thing. Your best line of defense is your vigilance and preparation. You don't want to worry. You just want peace of mind. That's why I recommend Simply Safe Home Security. For every ridiculous robbery and theft we talk about, it's pretty obvious the crimes could be avoided with a solid security system. A good home security system keeps people prepared and aware. Simply Safe is that system. It was named Best Home Security Systems 2024 by U.S. News and World Report. And it doesn't just protect your home from crime, it also alerts you to fire, floods, and other emergencies. They offer sensors and cameras backed by 24 7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. There are no contracts, and there's a 60 day money back guarantee. Get 20% off any new Simply Safe system when you sign up for Fast Protect Monitoring. Just visit simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. That's simplysafe.com slash ridiculous crime. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold Blooded The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, Zarin, before we were so rudely interrupted. <laughs> we By were, all that crass commercialism. <laughs> we were with Bruno Schultz on the docks in Hoboken. The Teutonic god of glass mm-hmm. eyeballs. His glass eyeball smuggling operation had just been exposed. And he had 15,000 glass eyeballs on him undeclared. 
I'm imagining that's a small, tidy sum he has they're looking at. They're basically just seeing, like, you know, not gold bars, but, like, a ton, like, a fortune on that dock. well, sure. I'm going to do a little math here for you. Thank you. I hate doing math. Well, math is not my strong suit, so this should be a fun ride. Okay. (laughs) He had 15,000 peepers, Uh which were, according to the New York Times, immediately following his arrest, Mm -hmm. valued at $105,000. Okay, $105,000. $1911. That's a lot of money. I'm getting and bottom. Yeah, that's a lot of money. I need you to understand something, Aaron. Yes. $105,000 in 1911 uh-huh. is worth almost $3.2 million today. Damn, that's better than Bitcoin. That's a lot of eye money. <laughs> Look at that. $3.2 million of glass eyeballs. Can yeah. you imagine that? I mean, And that's, that's just on one run. It yeah. turns out he'd been doing this for 11 years. That's he'd, like cocaine cartel money. He's yeah. just sitting there like, yeah, I'm just a small time operator. Right. If one run, $3.2 million. That's nuts. And in over in the 11 years that he was moving glass eyes, mm-hmm. his total 11 years. smuggled eyes, 100,000. Oh, man. Smuggled eyes. That's worth $21 million today. Well, wait a minute. If he did, he said the 100,000 eyes? Uh-huh, over 11 over years. Over 11 years, and he did 15,000 on this run? Uh-huh. So he's doing like two runs a year? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's back and forth. Okay. You can see him on various ship manifests mm-hmm. at the time. It's pretty, it's interesting to see when he was going and, and the frequency. He's going back and forth quite a bit. So um, he's pushing serious eyeball weight, <laughs> and he's avoiding... Jay-Z would be so proud of him. <laughs> totally. He's avoiding millions and millions in taxes. Yeah, like I said, super proud of him. Yeah. So Bruno gets pinched. Okay. He's arrested on the docks that day, Mm -hmm. hauled away. His bail is set at $5,000, which is equivalent to $150,000 today. I'm kind of surprised. That's a damn. I'm kind of surprised he didn't like uh, try to grease some palms and be like, how much? $5,000? Here's $10,000. Maybe we forget about this. They tell him $5,000 and he doesn't, you know, get a bail bondsman or whatever. He gives him five grand cash and Uh is like, can I go? Oh, yeah. I mean, he's probably got a fat wallet. So, you know, sure. Off he goes. In the meantime, the opticians to whom he sold these smuggled prosthetics, they're Mm -hmm. starting to feel the pain. Oh, because their supplies cut off. Well, and they're seizing these eyes. Um, The feds are going to these opticians and trying to, to go back and like take that, that product Uh to account up you know, how much he had sold to these people. So they're like, who are your buyers? And they go to the buyer and like, where did you get this? And they're like, oh, let's yeah. like see the receipts. So and they don't have the receipts. Paperwork. They're pulling them all. Yeah, they're going through the paperwork trying to reclaim them because it's they've got hot eyes, right? <laughs> so there's an optician in St. Paul, Minnesota. He had 600 eyes taken away from him by customs. Oh, damn. And that's got a huge dent in his business. Oh, yeah. A lot of the other opticians had been able to move their product before it was seized by the government, <laughs> but those with high inventory, they weren't so lucky. Right. They didn't every get in trouble. Must move sale. Exactly. They didn't get in, as a bogo sale. Yeah. Um, they didn't get in trouble with the feds. They just had it taken away, which oh, okay. just gives you financial yeah, totally, trouble. Yeah. Okay. Um, they didn't. They just thought they were getting like a good deal from this German aristocrat. Yeah, like he just happens to have good product at a good, yeah. great price. Very American. What's wrong here? So Bruno's awaiting trial, uh-huh. and he's out on bail. Then he gets arrested again. <laughs> for what this, this time? This time, it's for smuggling eyes uh-huh. from earlier in the year, um, but they're animal eyes this time. Like an- animal? Like 
glass eyes. Oh, glass eyes for yeah, animals. For animals. Wait, animals also need glass eyes. <laughs> well, they're like really like like a, like a really shy dog. It's like I just don't want to leave the house unless I have two eyes. Yeah, the cat who got into a scrap. Yeah, and, like yeah. lost one and just now won't go out to. They and wants to be in like the the kitty pageant. It's just not working. They they wear those flippers, the fake teeth too. Uh, taxidermy. All right. Yeah. Okay. So for hunters and everything to like put eyes in deer. Yeah. I'm guessing it was for taxidermatological reasons. <laughs> <laughs> um, he used false consular invoices to get the eyeballs through customs. And when they did the investigation, they found that that was, so they arrest him again. <laughs> this time, bail, $10,000. That's like 300000 today. Yeah. That's sizable. He pays it. Uh-huh. He's like, I'm out of here, suckers. Um, the animal eye case goes to trial first. Okay. And local eyeball merchants, the ones for human eyes too, they grass him out to the feds. They testify. His accomplice from the docks, the mm-hmm. printer, he also testifies, Philip Stroh. He says that he printed up all the fake invoices that undervalued the goods. I'm telling you, he's the inside snitch. He's he was on the dock when the cops showed up. He knew when Bruno was, was showing like up. He was touching the side he, of his nose. Yeah, he again. doubled down with the opticians. He's okay. like, all right, how about if I switch yeah. my cut to y'all? Yep, can't be trusted. Bruno, <laughs> he's faced with all this solid evidence. He's found uh-huh. guilty and sentenced to four years. And it also turns out that he was arrested back in 1897 for the same charge. In New York? Mm-hmm. And he did a year then. Huh. So he, this, is, this is not a new thing for him. He knows what it's like to go to jail. He's done it. He's been inside before. So he makes a choice. It's like, I can do this standing on my head. No, he skips town. Nice! <laughs> a true hero. <laughs> That's February 1912. Okay. So, I, I mean, I guess that information sharing and access was difficult back then if everything's just paper or yeah, analog. Yeah. Um, so when you factor in not just the multiple aliases, but also the various spellings assigned to names from non-English speaking countries. Oh yeah, the his Ellis name, Island. Ooh wee, ooh yeah. wee. I had to look up so many iterations of how someone like me who doesn't speak German mm-hmm. would spell this dude's name. <laughs> and also German has like those big letters, like the S's that are not S's and stuff well, in the middle of words. Well, when you search it on newspapers.com, mm-hmm. one of my favorite websites. You search his name, and they have German-language newspapers from Pennsylvania that come up. Oh, yeah. Like and it's that— Near Lancaster and all that. Yeah, area. it's that, like, uh, flowery uh-huh. t- t- uh, font. Yeah. yeah. And so when I tried to screen cap it to then run it through Google Translate, Google Translate was like, you know— I don't translate art. What is this? Is what is this, this calligraphy? Old, is this old-timey, like, uh, <laughs> souvenirs that you got? Um, is this gang scroll? I don't know. I don't recognize this. totally what it looks like. They're like, whose stomach is this? Um, Does that say thug life? What is that? <laughs> But so you he, things get lost in the shuffle because of, you know, like I said, analog, paper, whatever. Oh, also in the state thing. Like if you jump state lines, you're pretty much a brand oh, new yeah. person. Yeah. But so enter the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. Ooh, Nothing gets over on these guys. They're the morality police. Founded in 1873 mm-hmm. by the New York State Legislature, they had to assist authorities in the courts in cracking down on immoral conduct. And who gets to decide what is immoral? They did. Yeah, them in the churches? Mm-hmm. So they're like especially concerned about print publications. Okay. And they had the powers of search, seizure, and arrest. 
They also got half the money from the fines imposed for the crimes. They were the so smutbusters. <laughs> so these smutbusters were incentivized to find crimes that they got paid off when they found them. Yes. Hmm, interesting. Yes. That's a that's moral. Yeah. That's a certain incentive. <laughs> so the name of the organization was changed to the Society to Maintain Public Decency in 1947. SMPD. And then they, yeah, they just busted it all up, got rid of it in 1950. They're like, there's too much. <laughs> This world is too uh, wait, full of filth. Did they give up or did they give in? <laughs> I like, think they gave in. I like, like that. So let me tell you some of their greatest hits. Okay. 1920. Okay. The magazine The Little Review mm-hmm. published a part of James Joyce's Ulysses mm-hmm. where the main character was masturbating. So the society tried to keep the book from being sold in the U.S. And at trial in 1921, the magazine was declared obscene. And as a result, Ulysses was banned in the United States. So they got Ulysses banned. Yes. They they alone got James Joyce banned. Yes. Wow. 1922. Raymond Halsey, mm-hmm. a bookstore employee, he gets arrested for selling the quote-unquote obscene novel Mademoiselle uh, de Mepin mm-hmm. by Théophile Gautier. And I do you like my Alex Trebek heavy French <laughs> Totally just drop right into it. Um, because of the adultery and homosexuality in mm-hmm. it, he um, is arrested. He gets acquitted. Now, he's just the employee of the bookstore. Yeah, he's just a bookseller. Not yeah. the writer, not no, the publisher. Not the owner of the store. Yeah. Uh, he successfully sues the society for false arrest and malicious prosecution. And this is the case that established that literary experts could offer testimony in support of a book to guide the judge's opinion. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I like all these historical precedents. Right? 1920s and 30s, they fought against what were called girly pulps which featured what they said was titillating fiction and nude photos. Huh. So these are like the predecessor to what we would think of as Playboy penthouse? Yeah. Okay. 1927, they shut down Mae West's first starring role on Broadway, which was a play called Sex. Oh, yeah, when she became a star, right? She That's spent like her... 10 days in jail. Oh, wow. Because of the society. I'm wondering if they kind of help these people along the way with the reputation. <laughs> right? Mae West, James Joyce. Give them some street cred. Yeah. 1932, they falsely arrested a bookseller for displaying a book on nudism in the store window. And the uh, secretary of the society, John uh, Sumner, he was ordered to pay the bookseller $500 in restitution. Oh, so, so they overreached again? Back. Okay. Yeah. 1934, they raided uh, magazine shops, and they wanted to confiscate four new magazines. And the only reason I'm sharing this is the magazine titles are amazing. Okay. Real Boudoir Tales. <laughs> They're real. It's the real Boudoir Tales of uh, Orange County. I can, County. Like, see the cover. <laughs> real Temptation Tales. Oh, yeah. There's a difference yeah. between Boudoir and Temptation. Real Forbidden Sweets. Oh, no. That's just all about candy. Um, Okay, yeah, that's what I'm picturing, yes. (laughs) It's a magazine for diabetics. Um, And then Real French Capers. Real French Capers? (laughs) Now that's my magazine. 1935, they claimed that Jim Tully's novel Ladies in the Parlor was indecent and emphasized what they called dirt in the raw. Dirt in the raw? Like, it was a gardening. What is that, like mud? <laughs> I guess. As opposed to clean, clean manufactured dirt? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> they didn't play around the society. Dirt. They were all up in everyone's business. Mm-hmm. Thankfully for us, they published an annual report. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so in 1913, they detailed their interaction with none other than Bruno. Oh, yes. Now, Bruno, he was an eyeball guy. Not so much. So I'm going to read to you from this. They said, for instance, in August last, we discovered a person operating as Albert Frohenbach in Berlin, Germany. He was sending into this country through the mails 
circulars advertising 111 varieties of obscene books. <laughs> Look, dude, he brings, he brings the numbers. He brings the numbers with eyeballs. He brings the numbers 15, with smut. <laughs> so it, said, it goes on. By corresponding with him, we secured the facts and reported, reported the same to the post office department with the request that the matter be called to the attention of the Honorable Secretary of State and that he asked to instruct our ambassador to Germany to advise the local authorities of the operations of this criminal. They wanted to call on the ambassador with some smut charges? They did. Oh, wow. They did. So he is arrested in Berlin. Oh, damn. <laughs> so, like, he... These moral they police. They look through his... They're able to pull up his records of getting arrested for the eyeball 1897 smuggling. bust, okay. Yeah, uh -huh. all of those. And then... Um, he, they have when he did time, when he skipped bail, um, and then they find they were able to track him to this alias Albert Frohrenbach. Yeah, so they must have connected the alias with Shonowitz or Shonowitz. Yeah, and well, because then in Berlin, he's going by the name Albert Frohrenbach Schultz Shonowitz. Oh, he ties he's them just together throwing himself. them all in there. Yeah, he did it himself. And um, he used the Bruno von Schonewitz to do his mailing. Uh, um, and he had citizenship papers for the U.S. as Schultz Frohrenbach. And he also used, had papers that said Bruno, Baron Bruno von Schonewitz, Freher von Ugensworth, whatever. It goes on and on. Do you think like in his newsletter or whatever his circular was, it's like Baron Bruno's big body bunch of smut. <laughs> bodacious, <and> like, <laughs> bodacious babes. Yeah, he just got like... <laughs> Well, it probably and had like a picture of him. Yeah, exactly. He's a little caricature in the corner of the piece of paper and there's like, you know, framing around the gilding and then in the center it's just smut books. With his seal of approval. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he's holding an eyeball. Um, so the smut busters, they track down Bruno. Mm -hmm. They tip off the German government. Um, he's, you know, out of eyeballs into naughty books. And he and some other German nationals had what the society was calling an international gang of smut dealers. Mm. That's a pretty Good. cool title. Yeah, I, I want kind of want to join that club. <laughs> what do you guys do? I'm the international gang of smut dealers. IGSD, brother. <laughs> it's a union. Um, they operated out of Berlin, Paris, and Barcelona. Local 412. I want to get a shirt that says International Gang of Smut Dealers and then Berlin, Paris, Paris. Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. like those very 80s fashion shirts. Where, yeah. <laughs> I like when you are on a vacation in a, in a kind of out-of-the-way place and they'll a shop will have a t-shirt mm -hmm. with that that's like, you know, yeah. Barstow, London, <laughs> Paris. Paris <yeah. laughs> so... The American contact for this group was a guy named James Emerson, but he also went by the name C. Nash. Of course he did. You're right. So the society goes to investigate that's his... C period? C period. Okay. So it could be any... Whatever you feel like calling him. Yeah, that's, that's you fine. Know, they go to investigate him at his mail drop at U.S. Express Company on West 24th mm. in New York. Okay. And um, he gets wise to him and just abandons his mail. This leaves all the checks for the smut. Off he goes. They did manage to get to his actual residence in Brooklyn, and they seized 851 photographic negatives, 29 films, and four electroplates for printing naughty photos. <laughs> he had a whole collection. Regular smut peddler. Here's the cool part, though. He also typed up spicy tales on his typewriter. Oh, nice. And he wrote them on, yeah, he wrote them on legal-sized paper. And bound them up to look like an official legal brief. 
so that you know. And then he was just selling them right into court. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> selling them for anything from fifty cents, which would be fifteen dollars today, okay. to twenty five bucks, which would be seven hundred and fifty dollars. Wow. Is that like a custom job? Or you tell him what yeah, you want? Yeah, you in give the, the names. Yeah, he does some fiction for you. Yeah, so. He, I really want to read like the 750. Oh. I want to read both ends of the spectrum. Yes, exactly. I want to read the get. cheapo ones and then I want to read the ones, yeah. The um, Russian literature version and the postcard version. There's like a lot of talk about pillowy exposed flesh. Oh, pillowy flesh. <laughs> so many That's euphemisms. That's a great, fra- yeah, right? great phrase. It's so good. Pillowy flesh. So the society, they were able to slowly track down the whole organization. They worked with the German authorities. Bruno gets arrested and jailed. He does a four month bid. Mm hmm. And then, but that's not the last we hear stateside about old Brun Bruns. Albert Froenbrock? <laughs> this is the very same. When we come back, I'm going to tell you the weird conclusion to this tale of smuggling and intrigue. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the recent history of documentary filmmaking... One scene stands out above all. The hot mic bathroom confession of Robert Durst in The Jinx. Now the person responsible for that moment, Sereb Kaufman, stepson of the victim, friend of the murderer, star of the documentary, for the first time ever, shares why he believes you're watching the furthest thing from the truth on this exclusive episode of Murder Homes. Listen to Murder Homes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mother's Day is right around the corner, and in true She Pivots fashion, we're highlighting moms who've dedicated their lives and their pivots to supporting mothers. The iconic Christy Turlington will join us to talk about launching Every Mother Counts after pivoting from her 90s supermodel days. And later, the co-CEOs of Baby to Baby will share how they're addressing the needs for millions of babies and moms. So tune in and subscribe to She Pivots. New episodes out every Wednesday. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ding dong, Las Culturistas calling. iHeart Podcast Awards 2023 Podcast of the Year, Las Culturistas, with SNL's Bowen Yang and comedian Matt Rogers. There's stuff happening in 2024 that we really need to address. Pop culture and huge guests like the latest episode with... Dua Lipa! The more I think about it, the more scared and nervous I get. Listen to the newest episode of Las Culturistas with Dua Lipa and all episodes on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search Las Culturistas to start listening.
So when we left off, Bruno was busted for racy mailings in Germany. Baron he... Bruno's body, bodacious babes of <laughs> the Black Forest. <laughs> he had a lovely estate outside of Dresden at the time. And apparently, while the eyeball money dried up, he was able to continue his capers just selling porn. <laughs> so his smut bust and time served was 1914. And I'm going to assume it's early in the year. Okay. Why is that? Because the war? Well, no, because in September of 1914, he pops up in a Muskogee, Oklahoma newspaper. Oh, there you go. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Hello? Muskogee, Oklahoma. You know, connect the dots, Zarin. Yeah, it was right know. there for you. So he's over there in like Creek country. <laughs> he wrote a letter to an attorney in Muskogee. And the attorney found the letter so interesting that he handed it over to the local paper and they did an article about the, the letter. His letter was that compelling. Yes. Why was he writing to the lawyer? Yes. Seems Bruno lost some luggage while traveling on the Midland Valley Railroad in 1912, and he was suing the railroad for damages. So his complaint letter about lost luggage is worthy of being printed in the local oh, yeah. paper? Given the timing, I'm going to guess that he lost his luggage while he was on the run. Yeah, totally. So... He had to give a deposition in the case for the American officials to send to the U.S. because mm -hmm. um, he's over there. He's in Germany. But he was having trouble getting the American consul in Germany to do it. Okay. Why? World War I. Okay, I knew there it. it I, I should have, shouldn't have waited. There it is. So the American consulate was overwhelmed with American citizens looking to get out of Dodge. Oh, looking to get out of Germany. Yeah. Right. Okay. Not, not out of America. They wanted I was to get out of Dodge. Yeah, they're like, they're just like, like, I got to get out of Kansas. I want to volunteer. You've been um, in Kansas in 1914? I got to get out of here. So Bruno, he goes to the consulate one day, and there are 55 people waiting in line for help. Okay. And he says, unacceptable. <laughs> and um, he goes home and he calls the consulate. And he says, can I just have this deposition taken and, like, send it myself to the States? Is that... Is that cool? Do we do that? Is that can, cool? Is that a thing? Can you maybe put a stamp on it? <laughs> and they're like, no, sorry. The German post office is only going to accept unsealed mail that's written in German. Wait, what? It's wartime. Oh, you keep having to remind me. I know. And I, I, I'm there with it, and then I forget immediately. <laughs> that's why I'm here. I'm here to guide everyone through these, these tales. Uh, the letter that he sent to the lawyer that went into the paper, mm -hmm. he said he had to send that from Austria. And it took him two hours by train to get there to be able to send it. Wow. And then he said that he was sending like 250 other letters at the time. Hello, is it smut? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Did you learn nothing? <laughs> so Who gave him access he likes to the to, post? He likes to run a con into the ground, <laughs> yeah, this guy. So like, like, I'm not even like, going to send a letter. It's cool. I'll be I right was back. sending tasteful nudes <laughs> and stories about pillowy flesh. And I just happened to put this one in the mail, too. Um he said that when he was sending it from Austria, that it would have to be routed through either Italy or Asia. Asian I'm not choices. sure why those are your choices. Um, but what's wild about the letter is what comes next. Hmm. He, he, he gives the details about this case. Like, I'm trying to send you my deposition, blah, blah, blah. But then he gives his commentary on strategic elements of the war. Wait, what? Like, remember, the letter comes to Muskogee just a couple of months after the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Okay. Take me out, indeed. <laughs> so let me read to you. Let me read to you his now I got commentary. A song in my head. You're welcome. Uh -huh. He says in his letter Insofar as the war is concerned, there is absolutely no doubt 
but what Russia and France will get what they deserve. By the time this letter will reach you, German troops will be besieging Paris and Warsaw. Heavy battles are expected on or about August 25th. It is generally known that Russia will lose Finland and the East Sea provinces, which will become a part of Germany. Poland will become a sovereign state, which it should have been long ago. The Ukraine will go to Austria, and Bessarabia will be given to Romania. Serbia will be divided up, the most of it going to Austria, and what is left to Albania and Bulgaria. France will lose most of her colonies, especially everything in Africa except Algeria. <laughs> Italy will get Corsica, uh, and then other ones that I can't read on this piece of paper, and the newspapers.com, not always like the clearest scanning. Belgium is going to disappear as a separate state, and the Netherlands will become a sovereign state in the German Empire. If England should also lose, and from what I hear from official sources, there is very little <laughs> doubt, but what she will, it will mean the end. I wish to say further that there are rumors that the United States is going to declare war, but nobody seems to know against whom or why. <laughs> He got a couple right. He got a couple right. He got the right. Finland right, the Poland right, and the rest are like, in Serbia did get card like W or whatever. wishful thinking yeah. on his part. The rest is pretty much like, what? So you'd figure he's writing these batty letters and he's just going to live out the rest of his days in Germany, sending off <laughs> naughtiness. Smut and random letters about the war. But we know Bruno. He likes to pop up with the ridiculousness. So no, there's more. But, but, but wait, there's more. <laughs> 1915 now, he's back in the USA right back where he started his smuggling operation. Um, you mean Hoboken? He's living in Philadelphia. Uh. <laughs> so October 2nd, 1915, he files a petition in the Court of Common Pleas number three, and he was asking the court for a name change. What do you want to change his name to? Rebecca? Regina Corntower. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to go from Bruno Carl Schulze uh -huh. to Bruno von Schonewitz Freher von Ungatsworth und Altersloen. And I oh. know I I know I just butchered that and I apologize, but I'm doing the best I can over here, people. If you want, I can butcher it worse. <laughs> <laughs> Why this new long name? Um, Why? He's got new charges? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a big possibility. He said he was actually the son of a German Viscount. Oh, and I he, like it. He He's wanted going to make it rank. official. Yeah, he wants to make it official. And then he weaves this incredible tale to the court. He says he was born in Saxony in 1868 mm -hmm. and that his father was a Viscount and his mother, Marie Lindner, uh, was a beautiful young German girl with a difficult-to-say name. Uh, just 21 years old. Just a little thing. His parents, madly in love. And he says, but before he was born, the Viscount went out for cigarettes and never came back. Ah, oh, that kind of madly in love. <laughs> uh, so the Viscount, dis uh, he deserts his pregnant gal. Was he like a Viscount, like in jazz terms? Like, was he a quote-unquote like, Viscount? Did he play saxophone and they called him the Viscount? <laughs> like he's like, I'm going to go ahead and get smokes. <laughs> She's two months, she's only two months pregnant at this time. Mm -hmm. And so he splits. She's despondent. She marries this. Wait, she's two months pregnant. So pretty much he splits right when he hears. Like, yeah. she's like, oh, I'm pregnant. He's like, oh, okay. Uh, have you seen my bags? Uh -huh. He's like, I'll be BRB. Uh, she marries this sad sack named Carl Schultz. Schulze. Oh, and that's where he gets the Bruno Schulze. Yeah. So, so he Carl, doesn't like his stepfather's name. Yeah. Carl knows about the Viscount and the pregnancy. And he wants to preserve... Marie's honor, and he agrees to give the child his name. So Bruno becomes Carl's 
Jr. <laughs> the look on your face. <laughs> You're so proud of yourself with that one. I want to like do the whole CSI Miami. Yeah, sunglasses come no. on. Um, oh, man. <laughs> Bruno's mom divorced Carl nine years later. Carl Sr. Carl Sr. Um, because he renounced her and denied his fatherhood of Bruno. So she's like, all right, that's it. We're over. <laughs> Bruno, his mom, and the Viscount all now separately would do this. They all immigrate to the United States. <laughs> On their own, one at a time? One at a time. Interesting. Independent of each other. Okay. And over time, both Bruno and his biological father, the Viscount, they became American citizens. His mom stays illegal? Yeah. <laughs> She's not here with papers. Bruno said he kept using his government name until May 28th, 1900. Mm -hmm. And it was on that day. Why May 28th, 1900? Because it's the day after May 27th? Yes. His mother, after all those years, marries the Viscount. Get out. Bruno, 32-year-old at the time. Mm -hmm. The 32-year-old uh, ring bearer. <laughs> He's like in the little like Disney movie. He's so happy he got his parents uh -huh. back together. The mom's 51 at this point. Mm, so, nice. you know, they finally found each other. Uh, and Does he have a twin brother? Did he find out that he also has a twin <laughs> Who brother? Who's been working on the dad the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> They're totally parent trapped. Uh, to restore his true place in the line of nobility, mm -hmm. Bruno had the Viscount give an affidavit to a Chicago notary public. Very trustworthy people. Yeah, stating that Bruno is his lawful child and heir and entitled to the family fortune. <laughs> he put all this on paper. Yeah, in crayon. <laughs> on one piece of paper. So, pause this. <laughs> he gets my name, he gets my wealth, he gets everything. <laughs> we know that Bruno knows a lot of shady characters, mm -hmm. himself included. People who can push paper, like the printer who well, snitched on so him. So yeah, we know he has fake documents in the past, mm -hmm. official documents. Um, I'm not sure if it was actually the Viscount who gave the statement or if the notary was in on it or if there was even a visit to the notary or if the Viscount even exists. Did the Viscount even marry his mom? Like I, I don't know. I'm not, I was having trouble finding out if this... Because, you know, World War II, they wiped out all the titles, from my understanding, in the German aristocracy. Oh, yeah, yeah, what I understand as well. So trying to track this the title... The gets real hard at that yeah, point. Yeah, it was really hard to track. So there's, But there's a part of me that thinks that this was like... If I started going around saying that I'm like... Baroness Hoosie Watts, and they're just like, that's not really a title. I'm like, oh, you guys, you just don't know how to translate it <laughs> from my my title bestowed in Planet California. Um, so we know he's a faker. We don't know what part of this, if any, is true. In his petition, he says he attests that he's not changing his name for the purpose of evading any obligation like skipped bail. Ah. Um, he also says he has no judgments or suits pending or threatened. So no bankruptcy, no yeah. lawsuits, I got you. Yeah. And um, he does say, well, I have one possible action in Germany. I've been using the name von Schonowitz instead of Schulze for the last 15 years without authorization from the German courts. But that's just paperwork. You know, we it's not a big deal. Out. It's not just, it's cool, it's cool. So <laughs> he gives his address in the petition as 1342 Pine Street, Philadelphia. Is there a 1342 Pine Street, Philadelphia? Not today, really. But you can see where, yeah, that would be like an area where okay. those, you know, there'd be like tenement homes. The newspaper goes to the address and is told that no one named Bruno lives there. <laughs> And so then the newspaper record contacts the attorney listed on the petition, a J. Howard Reber. Reber? Reber? Reber. 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 
Um, he says he knows nothing about the case. <laughs> Wait, he's on the he's, yes. <laughs> he's the attorney of record. And yeah. So that's like the kicker in the article about this whole thing, which again wound up on wire service stories about mm-hmm. this this guy wants to change his name from a short name to a long name. And you see it just pep- popping up at all these papers across the country. Influencer culture was so different back then. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he, he, that's it at the end. They're like, yeah, guess what? You know, no one's at that address and the attorney wouldn't get back to us and we should have a decision on this next week. And then it never pops up in the paper again. Nothing, oh, so we don't know for sure. Nothing's certain. reported on the name change. We don't know if it was approved. The last we hear f- about Bruno in historical documents is May 27th, 1918. Hmm. And so... This is like right before his parents' wedding anniversary that year. Yeah, I remember May 28th was yeah. the other one, yeah. So this is 1918. Huh. The Classification Value Report Bureau of the Customs Intelligence Office. Oh, the CVRB. Yeah, of the CIO. They issued bulletin number 327. Ah, classic. Called Von Schonowitz Bruno. Formerly doing business at Hoboken, New Jersey under the name of Schulze, BCL where it is said he was indicted for smuggling artificial eyes into the United States. Von Schonowitz has sent circulars into the United States from Zurich, Switzerland, stating... Now, he's sending circulars. Mm-hmm. What's on the circulars? Yeah. <clears throat> I think we all know. No, he's coming full circle, stating oh. that he has made arrangements to send glass eyes into this country. He's Wait. back on the glass eye game. <laughs> and so now he's sending circulars from Germany saying, how about this? I'll send them from here. Yeah. We cool? Well, and he sa- it says, he states in his circular that while the laws prohibit traffic with hostile countries, they do not prohibit traffic with an American citizen, which he is, living in a neutral country like Switzerland, if the goods are made in the neutral country too. There is some doubt whether the artificial <laughs> eyes to be shipped to the United States by von Schonewitz originated in Switzerland or Germany. That's Swiss German. That's not German (laughs) German. Do you see that writing? You can tell. Such merchandise should be carefully scrutinized, therefore, to determine whether there has been any violation of the Trading with the Enemy Act. Mm, Trading with the Enemy Act. So he's back in the eyeball game. He was in too deep, baby. You couldn't get him out. (laughs) You can't pull yourself out of that. It'll pull you right back in. And so now he's dabbling with the Trading with the Enemy Act. (laughs) It's good money, I'm telling you. And glass eyeballs. I am positive that he kept up his felonious ways until his last breath. I'm thinking it is his way. I'm guessing he also probably switched up his name again. I and that's he, why we haven't been able to find anything beyond 1918. He just disappears entirely. Can't find a thing. Huh. Yeah. So no, I couldn't even find a death notice anywhere. You think maybe the war? No, I think he just, I think... So I'm saying like he's over there in a war, you know, like maybe some aspect of the war like caused him to either change his identity or lose his identity completely and with his mortality. Could be. Oh, could be. Who yeah, knows? Maybe, maybe he to tries say? to run a scam on somebody in war times and it doesn't play out as well. That's true. That could have all these things are possibilities. And the <laughs> so beautiful part possibilities. We get to decide for ourselves. I'm gonna get I'm gonna say that, the lady uh, or the tiger. I'm gonna say that he's still with us today. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Polishing eyeballs. Um, so that right there, that's the story of the greatest glass eye smuggler of all time. Give not not the not the runner up, the number one, Bruno Schulze. Yeah. King of, the, king of the game. What's our Better ridiculous know his name. takeaway here? King Bruno Schulze. <laughs> uh, my ridiculous takeaway is 
the human body will dissolve glass if you give it enough yeah. time. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. Uh, I think that Bruno's just the embodiment of ridiculous. <laughs> yes, he is. You know, it's ridiculously ballsy to skip out on a sentence and then keep getting caught, but not have to do anything about <laughs> no. it. He switches up his illicit activities and then he gets caught again. And then he walks, he walks into a court. Hi. It's me. It's me. I want to change my name. Uh, the name's already on the government papers. Ridiculous. A ridiculous hustle just never died with him. So um, some say he's still out there sneaking glass eyes into the country this, to this day. Ridiculous crime. First team All-American. Bruno Schultze. <laughs> That's it. Thank you for joining us. I'm Elizabeth Dutton. And I am Elizabeth Dutton. Yes. You can find us online at Ridiculous Crime on both Twitter and Instagram. Uh, hey, hey, pal, you got a tip for us about a ridiculous crime that you want to hear about? You want to confess to a ridiculous crime? And we don't need any more emails about the duct tape bandit. Just heads up. Um, email us at ridiculouscrime at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you. Ridiculous Crime is hosted by Elizabeth Dutton and Zarin Burnett. Produced and edited by Organ of Sight, Dave Couston. Research is by Glassy Orb, Marissa Brown. The theme song is by Thomas Manson Lamps Lee and Victorian smut peddler, Travis Dutton. Executive producers are Ben Left Eye Bolin and Noel Tibaz Brown. Ridiculous Crime is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company, Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.